0: In 2018, the Wealth Standard podcast broke down the year into three seasons, each focusing on a principle from the inspired works of philosopher John Locke, specifically his philosophy on life, liberty, and property. In 2019, we progressed from principle to the ideal environment for building wealth and achieving prosperity. The theme was laissez-faire capitalism, For season two, it continues. The theme is entrepreneurship and intrapreneurship and how you apply the principles and environment to the individual. The guests ranging from economists to entrepreneurs to political influencers, authors, and more will teach you how to take your life to the next level. Now, on to the next episode. Hey, uh, what's up, everyone? This is Patrick. Welcome to another episode of the Wealth Standard Podcast. We're still talking about uh, entrepreneurship. And this week, I had an awesome opportunity to speak with Dr. David Kelly. He is the founder of the Atlas Society that he founded in 1990. Been a huge advocate of uh, objectivism and, and has written a number of books. Has a lot of accolades. The Atlas Society has just a mountain of information on their website. It was an awesome interview. I really liked the way he described the ideas of objectivism, what he sees today, the involvement of the Atlas Society in, in regards to you know younger entrepreneurs, and really seeing around the world how those, whether they describe their activities and their philosophy as as objectivism or not, still understand its basic tenets and and that is really causing this this entrepreneurial type of drive toward improving someone's life and improving the world in general. And listen, I I understand that there are some things we talk about in here that are uh, somewhat controversial depending on where your perspective is, but I would encourage you to listen to the part where I talk about language and how important it is to use the right words and language to describe what the actual meaning is because these days things are taken out of context, misconstrued and so forth. So it's but regardless, it was a great conversation, I think you guys are gonna learn a lot. And for those of you who have not read Atlas Shrugged yet, I think this is gonna be a, a one that inspires you to do so. And maybe for some who haven't read it in a while, inspire you to read it again. Uh, but you guys are really going to enjoy it. If you like what you hear, go back and listen to the previous episodes in this season. also get onto YouTube as well. where we have all of our uh, the episodes video, and this one is included. Uh, I think you guys would uh, enjoy that if you're uh, visual learners. But listen, thanks for all the support. You guys are amazing. If you guys have some time, like what you hear, head over to iTunes and give us a good review. It definitely helps, uh, especially recently as the way in which finding podcasts has been more difficult. And so high ratings definitely uh, increases the uh, amount of presence that we have and helps us increase our listenership and also share uh, with a friend too. All right. That's it. Hope you guys have an amazing week. We'll talk to you uh, next week with another amazing guest. His name is Mike Moyer, and he wrote the book Slicing Pie. It's gonna be a, that's gonna be a fun one. I can't wait to do that one. All right, without further delay, here is my interview with Dr. David Kelly. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning in. My book, the Amazon bestseller, Heads I Win, Tails You Lose, a financial strategy to reignite the American dream is completely changing the way people look at saving wealth and retirement. Want a sneak peek? Head on over to www.headsortailsiwin.com forward slash podcast for a free audio and text download of my favorite chapter. Again, that's headsortailsiwin.com forward slash podcast. Dr. Kelly, you know, it is such a, an honor to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for taking your time.
1: Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Patrick. Thank you.
0: You know, the first thing that I'm just so impressed by is just how much of your, your life and your energy has been focused around advancing the, the philosophy of objectivism with the Atlas Society and other and other groups. Would you be able to tell the audience what were the events and circumstances that led to your decision to make that dedication?
1: Sure. I'll try to be brief because it's, <laughs> it's been a, fairly long life so far, but I read Ayn Rand in high school at a time when I was really thinking about what I wanted to do with my life, what my values were, and I was as many people at that age do. And I came across Ayn Rand and it kind of bowled me over that she had developed ideas that I had just just begun to roads that I just begun to explore. And she had gone much further down those roads. And However, what led me to read her in the first place was uh, what became clear as an emerging interest in philosophy as a branch of knowledge, as, a, as, as something I wanted to study. So I went to college to study philosophy, and you didn't expect that I would end, remain as committed to objectivism theoretically as I was when I went to college. But I, every challenge that from other philosophers, from my professors, I'd see mine ran had a good answer to. And so I never saw a reason to change. And the reason I stayed with it, my interest, I went to grad school, I decided I wanted to teach. So I ended up teaching at Vassar College for about 10 years. That's in Poughkeepsie, New York, as you know. And afterwards, I continued to write in philosophy and started the organization. I founded the Atlas Society in 1990 as a way to provide information to people who were interested in Ayn Rand's ideas. And... At the time it was there already was one major and and other minor organizations, but I felt we what objectivism needed was a more open and exploratory way of approaching the ideas with the idea that the philosophy should grow. Ayn Rand was a genius, but she didn't discover everything there is to know. And so we launched this, the Atlas Society, to do research, to do education, to do some advocacy, not electoral at the electoral level but in terms of political philosophy and fighting for capitalism, not just a political, but a moral ideal.
0: Thank you for going through that. Maybe a little further into the topic of objectivism, how would you describe that to the neophyte, the novice that you know, may understand general philosophy, but not objectivism? How would you go about explaining that?
1: Well, I, to, I would normally explain it in terms of four pillars. Let's call them pillars. The one that most people are familiar with is that objectivism believes in capitalism. The minimal government, individual rights, free markets, rule of law, government is an umpire, but it does not get into the economic game. It protects property rights and contracts, but otherwise it leaves people free to engage in any kind of mutual exchange that both parties want to do. So that was the political ideal. That's pillar number one. But very importantly, and this is what I think distinguishes Ayn Rand from some other advocates of capitalism, is that she felt it had to be based on a view of of individualism as a moral philosophy. That is, that individuals have the moral right, it's morally proper for them to act on their own judgment and to act for their own benefit, for pursuing their rational self-interest. She was an opponent of the doctrine, the ethical doctrine of of altruism, which emphasizes sacrifice, helping others, self-sacrifice. She said no. That she was very comfortable with the idea of benevolence and, in proper cases, helping others when it's deserved. That is not the core of life. The core of life is, and this is pillar number three, being a producer, creating value by the use of your own mind in the service of your life, not just the monetary rewards, but also the what we could call the spiritual or Emotional rewards of pride in what you're doing, self fulfillment in exercising your capacities. So she was again somewhat distinctive when she talked about this pillar, the the idea of production, productiveness as the core of, as a central value of life. She was somewhat unique in that she thought any kind of production was good. You could be an artist, writer, political leader, or businessman or merchant, or trader, or banker, and they were all forms of productive work, all honorable when well done without fraud or dishonesty. And so she opposed the idea that somehow the arts and other professions are good or honorable and making money is just kind of this this lowly thing. No, she thought it was a, a great value. And that's why in her major novel, Atlas Shrugged, the heroes were all people in business. They ran railroads, they had steel companies and so forth. So three pillars so far, capitalism, individualism, including egoism, if you want to call it that, pursuit of self interest. Third, productiveness, creating value as a core part of a rational life. And then finally, the absolutism of reason. She believed that reason was our only guide to knowledge and action. And as opposed to faith or emotionalism or whim, whatever. And that's why I've said rational self-interest. So in that respect, she was a secular philosopher. As an advocate of reason exclusively, she did not hold with any form of religious faith or any other kind of faith that was not based on reason.
0: That's a great description as far as the pillars are concerned. And I would say in, in what I've seen in the, the research and the reading I've done over the years, there are a lot of opponents, those that criticize the idea of capitalism and uh, objectivism. What do you see as the most common refutes for this tenets of objectivism?
1: Let me start by saying there are many people who object to objectivism or to capitalism in particular uh, on the grounds that it's selfish. Well, it is. Ayn Rand was an advocate of what she called the virtue of selfishness. That was the title of one of her books. But what she meant by selfishness is not the grasping, exploitative, narcissistic kind of way of living or personality that is often conceived and that people associate the term with. No, self-interest means pursuing your best self, your best life by rational standards in which that involves production. And it involves treating others, people fairly by mutual exchange to mutual benefit, whether we're talking about a economic exchange. But even in friendship and love, if people are those relationships are hugely important to us as people. But we need to be remain ourselves even in a very, very close relationship. Hmm. So. I think part of the problem here is that people don't understand what she meant by self-interest. But in terms of capitalism, I think the one objection that maybe I worry about a bit is that people say, this is an ideal. And if people were all heroes, if they were all objectivists, committed and acted in accordance with these values, sure, the world would be a lot better. But people are not like that. We have crony capitalism, whenever you get people together and give them any kind of option to cut corners, they some people will. And my best answer to that question is that, well, we have right now is a mixed economy in which there the government has a lot of power and over companies and increasingly over our personal lives in terms of what we eat, what we smoke, whether we smoke and so forth. And once you have that power in the hands of the government, then people are going to try to take advantage of that power, get special privileges because they support a candidate, they get some benefits in return. So they clamor for subsidies or regulations that will harm the competition. I mean, you know this better than I do. It's, there's a huge element of cronyism, but that's largely because the opportunity has been created for that. You put a trough of government money out there and the pigs are going to show up. The intention behind capitalizing
0: on those opportunities in and of itself revolves around self-interest and selfishness.
1: Well, yes, that, that is a kind of more conventional type of selfishness. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And mm-hmm. people are, you know, looking to gild their own nest.
0: David, there was a, you know, I, I had a, a really interesting experience this, this past weekend. So I have a, I have two teenage daughters and once a year, my wife is Latina and she has like this, you know, her friends come over and they have a big party and so we're not allowed in the house that, that night. So I usually take the kids up to Park City because it's the rates are low and it's beautiful up there in the fall. But my daughter asked me the, a couple of questions. And the first one was fascinating. And again, it relates to this topic because of the misunderstanding of words. And she said, Dad, if somebody has never been able to hear, how do they describe things in their mind? Like What words do they use? And it was interesting because you know if somebody has never heard words, then they, they probably don't use words. Right? It's the understanding of meaning, right? Which is the most important things. Words are just a way to, of describing it. And that's, I, I, I right. agree with you in regards to how individuals have really misconstrued the nature of capitalism or objectivism because of a confusion of, of words and the word's meaning.
1: Well, that's certainly true. Uh, people hear the word capitalism and they think that refers to what we have today. But what we have today is not of pure capitalism. It's not laissez faire capitalism. It's a mixed economy with some large socialist elements like Medicare is a socialist enterprise run by the government. Public education is a socialist enterprise. I mean, is, we're not living in a consistently capitalist world. No. And so getting to meanings is hugely important. That's one of the things that I am particularly interested in because my main interest in philosophy is the theory of knowledge, how we acquire knowledge, how we validate our knowledge. And it At the core of that is, how do we form concepts that we then express in words? How do we form abstractions like economy, like capitalism, like good and bad, and so forth? So your daughter actually raised a fascinating psychological question, and I don't know enough about deaf people. I think what I do know is that children tend to learn um, language rapidly, and virtually every child who's ever existed has learned language, picked it up somehow. And with deaf children, they may not be able to speak, hear, or speak their language, but they're, you know, there's sign language that if, they, if they're given a chance, they will pick that up.
0: It was a fascinating just dialogue. And there's another part I'll bring in in just a second. But I wanted to ask you, because you've had such an extensive career and have probably met a lot of people, what are maybe some examples of individuals or groups or someone that may have opposed the ideas of objectivism? And because of an interaction with you, or relationship with you, or, or the groups that you're associated with, really had that aha moment, the epiphany, that
1: awakening. Many people, when they first read one of Rand's novels, in particular, have this momentous feeling. This is to the effect. This is so right. Many people say, you know, she put in words what I've kind of believed all along, but didn't know how to say, or was maybe afraid to say because it ran against what I was hearing, the beliefs that I was hearing from people around me. And I've seen that over and over again with students and with older people who, one of the gentlemen who served on our board of trustees at the Atlas Society for many years was a already a very successful businessman. And then he read Atlas Shrugged. I mean, just the fact that he read a thousand page novel in the middle of his busy life, his career running a company is pretty amazing. But then he got in touch with Ayn Rand and then launched help various projects to help spread the ideas. But so the point is, it's not just for teenagers, which is one of the little snarky things people say about objectivism, which is not true. But there is something powerful, really powerful about the way Ayn Rand put ideas and the depth and clarity combined with the emotional power of an ideal is very striking.
0: It is. And I would say, you know, as I've learned about marketing and storytelling and business and I read, you know, Atlas Shrugged. You know, it's been probably 20 years. It's this, you know, whether it's the hero's journey with John Galt as the kind of the the core character and how he, you know, his journey happens and the different things that he says and other characters in there and their role. It's fascinating how it is fiction, but it really paralleled to what society was likely. That In that point in time, but also it continues to be that way. And so it's the understanding of the world that we live in and then that world, but then also the way in which the story is told is just fascinating. And that's where for listeners who have not read uh, Atlas Shrugged, it's quite a large volume of work, but it is profound the impact that it has on your ability to understand life at a different level, a, a more magnified level, I would say. Again, going to just where my curiosity lies, has there been cases in which you've maybe seen recently where those that did have influence that were able to read or talk to you or become open to these ideas that has made a difference, that has been more influential than someone in college or someone that is a budding entrepreneur reads? Have you seen some significant cases over the last five, 10 years that stand out in your mind?
1: I know many people, I've worked with people, I've with when I founded the organization almost 30 years ago, I, part of my job was to get in touch with leaders of other think tanks that had some, at least some overlap with our ideas. And I've met and talked with many of them over the years. Uh, tomorrow, we are, for example, we are having our annual gala in New York City. And John Stossel will be there, a number of other people who, who are maybe not, hard-carrying objectivists in a sense, but they love the ideas and they appreciate the power that those ideas hold and the degree in which they could be effective in moving the country more toward a greater level of freedom. In terms of whether we've had that kind of movement, I don't know. I like to think that Ayn Rand had something, some influence. Uh, she certainly had some influence over the growth of libertarianism as a political philosophy. And as expounded by Cato Institute, Reason Foundation, the number now of other think tanks. And we have had some degree of deregulation. We have had some change in tax laws that lowered the extent of government expropriation. And I think the libertarians were leading the march on that. And Ayn Rand was one of the main inspirations for that movement. And that's why uh, I love the way, maybe
0: yeah. your initial comments when you talked about the more openness you had instead of the rigidity of maybe how objectivism was in the very beginning, but the flexibility to see how it relates and influences. You know, in the example you used, the more libertarian <coughs> movement, the more economics uh, movement, business movement, which right. I completely uh, agree with because there's relevance, even it, it may not be wholeheartedly pure objectivism. At the same time, some of those tenants are going to forward the influence that it has on the overall society.
1: No, absolutely. This is a kind of a strategic choice that anyone who's involved with objectivism has to make. Do you work with, collaborate with people who share some of your ideas, but not all? Or do you have to have complete agreement? And I thought, in my mind, it's clear that the only way to get ideas out is to be incremental about it, to to open the doors to people, to come take what they can from the philosophy and hope that those seeds will grow into something good in their lives and whatever they go on to do and politically in terms of a greater movement and support for a freer system.
0: That's you, awesome. Well, I have, a, just have maybe just a few them. more points. I know... If you're gala is tomorrow that means you're probably somewhat busy getting all the logistics <laughs> finalized so just a cu- couple more questions yeah the season that we're in right now as i as I mentioned uh, to you is, is is entrepreneurship and the nature of that and right. I look at you know, an understanding of objectivism and ways in which that entrepreneur or entrepreneurial organization could could be magnified. Like, what do you usually teach or understand about the relevance of objectivism as it relates to the success of of an entrepreneur?
1: Oh, gosh, there are many, so many ways. One way I like to describe the objectivist moral code or ethics is in terms of being an entrepreneur in your own life. That is, take the viewpoint that you own your life. It's yours. But you're also totally responsible. The buck starts to, the, the buck stops at your desk. so on the one hand, you're entitled to everything you earn, and you should enjoy it, but you're also responsible for the risks and the losses and In that respect, I think entrepreneurs hold a special kind of honor place from an objectivist standpoint because they are striking out, taking a road no one's gone down before and incurring risks. They hire people, they raise money, they have to inspire confidence, but they have to then succeed. And it takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of integrity, rationality, and talk about productiveness as a value. Most entrepreneurs I know spend enormous numbers of hours getting off the ground. So I think Atlas Shrug is, if you pardon the phrase, could be, is a good Bible for entrepreneurs because it really taps and it expresses uh, in beautiful language. It expresses the values that most entrepreneurs have and pursue.
0: Well, amen to that. I'll, I'll say my final point, And then I'd love for you to uh, at the end, just describe some of the things you're doing right now. How can our audience learn more about the Atlas society, some of the activities you have in social media, things you're doing, and other things you're at, ad- you're advocating. So what I was going to give that second part to the story with my daughter, is the next morning after we had that initial interaction, she was paying attention to just the hotel that we were at. And this is a really unique hotel where it's, it's in Park City, but you have to take this elevator up. It's a, these two big elevators that go to this top of the hill. It's a beautiful hotel. Oh, it, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. The, the views are amazing, amazing of Deer Valley. And, but she started noticing and she said, Dad, how does something like this just happen? Like, how does a hotel like this, how is it created? it was fascinating right and it's again the just the the brilliance of kids and just how how their minds are thinking is, is fascinating to me but it allowed me c- kind of a conversation to talk about the elements the material for everything has has always existed right but it really had to do with a man's mind a person's mind man or woman's mind a human being's mind to figure out ways in which they could as you put it earlier provide value to others but it's also the you know the infrastructure that protects property rights or intellectual property rights and how businesses are formed, right? So that a person has some degree of certainty associated with what they create, that because there's investment required, because there's time involved, because there's putting a team together, that there's a certainty that there will be an output. There will be something remunerated. And so going through that process allowed her to understand government Mm -hmm. and understand laws, understand property rights. And it was fascinating. But I I look at where the minds of children are these days. And I think the jury's out (laughs) there You know the typical education is way behind, and being able to access data to understand facts you don't have to memorize it you don't have to keep your brain filled with that information because it's at your fingertips It's you know exploring other ways in which to solve problems and create opportunities is I don't know it just gives me a lot of confidence in, in kids these days, teenagers, even those in the millennial generation to really see the world mm. the things that are going on and actually taking action to provide opportunities for themselves, but also see that it can provide opportunity and value to others. So, I don't know, it was just a very serendipitous experience I had with my daughter, given the fact that I was interviewing you today, but but I'm sure (laughs) you get to see those examples a a lot.
1: I do. And one of the things that I, it's just sort of a constant with me and, you know, I live in the middle of the city in an apartment building. I look out my window and all around me, I see nothing except man-made streets, cars, buildings, well, people, of course, they're not uh, they are natural in a certain way, but they are educated by uh, engaged in activities that are man made so to speak artificial invented by someone and I just think I'm looking at an enormous amount of intelligence embodied in that brick building over there, in the automobile passing below, in the guys who are repairing the street, and in addition to the appreciating the property rights contracts and investments that lie behind all that. I think it's also worth thinking about the human soul that is out there, the intelligence and the commitment that went into making the world that we all live in.
0: Now, that's a great way of saying it. And I look at the same thing and again with like emerging markets and how, whether it's Africa or even the Middle East, despite its chaos, there's so much entrepreneurial activity there and also in Asia. And it's interesting just to see kind of a generation that's wanting more for themselves, that wants to get out there and create, take their ideas, take who they are and bring mm-hmm. that value to the marketplace. It's just a. at the same time, there's lots of chaos and turmoil. There's also so much to celebrate because it's not just the, the U.S. anymore, but a lot of other emerging markets are
1: following suit to a degree. Yeah, and that's all good. That's all good. Happy to see it.
0: Well, Dr. Kelly, thank you so much for your time. Would you mind telling the, the audience the best ways to either follow you or support the Atlas Society or learn more about objectivism? What are some ways that they can do that?
1: The best way is to go to our website, org. And by this point, after 30 years, we have probably thousands of articles, courses, videos. We have lately been producing some very short videos that Called draw draw my life videos where we personify something like envy or money or some topic we want to talk about and we personify it and make the videos are very captivating they they usually get a million views minimum so that's a good entry point to learn more but we also have courses you can take articles you can read and probably the best thing to do would be to sign up for our newsletter we have a once a week we send out a bulletin of what's going on you can opt in see if you like it. And we also, of course, are a nonprofit organization supported by donors. We do not accept any government money. Not that any government has been rushing to offer us (laughs) any, but we wouldn't (laughs) take it anyway. And we have a very strong board of trustees who, you know, themselves are major contributors, but also oversee the operations and to preserve the integrity. So, if you like what you see, I would definitely urge to you can contribute right on the site. There's a donate button up in the corner of every page, but also get in touch with us. We get letters all the time and we try to answer as many as we can. And sometimes it includes me. I'm officially retired, but I'm still on the board and I'm, I'm still working in various ways. So anyway, I wish all, all of your listeners all the best. And I hope that part of that best will involve checking out Ayn Rand and Objectivism and the Atlas Society.
0: Well, Dr. Kelly, thank you again. And I wish you well. We wish you well uh, tomorrow at your gala. And let's connect sometime in the future.
1: Okay. I look forward to it. Thank you.
0: Take care now. Thank you for listening to The Wealth Standard Podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time.